It's a victory for landlords and property owners, and it could spell trouble for people who have struggled to pay their rent during the pandemic. Hey, everyone. This isn't Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. He's on vacation. This is Rachel. I produce this show. On this Patreon-only episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about the Centers for Disease Control's eviction moratorium. In an unsigned ruling, the court held that the CDC had exceeded its authority in banning eviction during the pandemic. Landlords are now free to evict tenants who were previously protected by the moratorium, and the court has handed another victory to the moneyed interests that want the federal government to play effectively no role in governing. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have flooded our nation with injustice, like rainwater in a New York City subway station. (laughs) I am Peter. Nice. I'm here with Michael. Hey, everybody. And Rhiannon. Hey, I'm the rat that's like flipping around and doing swims. You're the swimming just rat. L- just laps in the subway shit water. You know, apparently that video is from like the Philippines from months ago. Okay, I'm still that rat. No, I don't care. I still I feel like it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's still relevant. I'm just glad that yeah. the rats are enjoying them. So. Yeah. S- some things can be true without being accurate. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And the rat you. video is one of those. Yeah. The spirit of the swimming rat transcends the <laughs> temporal reality. That's right. That's right. All right. Today's case is Alabama Association of Realtors v. Department of Health and Human Services, better known as the eviction moratorium case. Mm. The story of what led us to this point in this case is long and frustrating. The Centers for Disease Control are authorized by law to take certain measures to combat disease or control disease, you might say. Mm. (laughs) There is a statute that outlines the scope of the measures they are allowed to take. Last year, one of the measures they took was to institute a nationwide eviction moratorium. That is, they issued an order that forbid the eviction of certain tenants for the non-payment of rent intended to prevent the spread of COVID that would likely result from mass evictions. Hmm. The order was challenged by a landlord's association claiming that it was beyond the scope of the CDC's authority. This June, the Supreme Court agreed with the landlords, saying that the moratorium was unlawful, but allowing it to continue through its expiration at the end of July. After it expired, public pressure mounted on the Biden administration to renew it, and on August 3rd, After some hemming and hawing, they bent to the pressure and issued a new modified moratorium. But the Supreme Court, in a six to three decision authored anonymously, (laughs) struck that moratorium down, claiming that the CDC was exceeding their authority. This is a case where the court took an awkward technical reading of a law and used it as an excuse to further criminalize poverty and mold government power to match the court's own vision of what government should look like. Yeah, There's so much weird conservative shit going on here that it's 
hard to know where to start. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I delegate that to Rhiannon, <laughs> as always. Thanks, boss. <laughs> so, yeah, just a little bit of breaking down the timeline of events that Peter just went through, but adding a little bit of detail. You know, there's both congressional action, there's executive action on the eviction moratorium over, you know, the past 18 months or so. So let's get into it. Back when the pandemic first started, if you'll recall, we had a different president at that time. His name was Donald Trump. Remember that guy? Anybody remember him? From The Apprentice? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that hair thing, like kind of a weird voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that guy. Mm. Anyway, so at the time, Congress did enact a moratorium on evictions at the outset of the pandemic. But that eviction moratorium was just temporary. Mm-hmm. That ban on evictions expired in July 2020. At that time, Donald Trump then asked the CDC to step in and issue a new ban on evictions, which it did in September of last year. Thank you, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Thank you. A hero, a working man's hero. (laughs) (laughs) So fast forward a bit. We had a little presidential election. We had a little attempted coup. Boom, bam, slickety Dan. Joe Biden is the president. You guys know Joe Biden? Yeah. He's like not the most coherent speaker. He's got that like translucent skin hair thing going. Talking about malarkey all the time. Not ringing Um, a bell, but you can move forward. (laughs) (laughs) So Joe Biden extended the CDC's eviction moratorium order in March of this year. And it was set to expire, like Peter said, at the end of June. Now, in May, nationwide groups representing landlords... <laughs> Eternity long pause to just <laughs> think about how awful <laughs> that phrase is. Uh, nationwide groups representing landlords sued the CDC, saying that the CDC was acting beyond the scope of its powers in enacting a ban on evictions. So, In this case, actually, the petition for the Alabama Realtors Association says that the CDC's, quote, continued insistence that public health concerns necessitate that landlords continue to provide free housing for tenants who have received vaccines or passed up the chance to get them is sheer doublespeak, Mm. end quote. So in district court, in many instances, um, the landlords won these challenges, but the moratorium was allowed to stay in place during the appeals process. Now, on June 24th, the Biden administration notified the Supreme Court that it was extending the eviction moratorium one last time through the end of July. In that announcement, the CDC said that, quote, the pandemic has presented a historic threat to the nation's public health. Keeping people in their homes and out of crowded or congregate settings like homeless shelters by preventing evictions is a key step in helping the stop and spread of COVID-19. Makes sense. Yeah, totally. A challenge to the eviction moratorium made its way to the Supreme Court in early July, and they narrowly ruled, like Peter said, to keep the moratorium in place. Now, in that case... Just a couple of months ago, Justice Kavanaugh cast the fifth vote there, and he wrote in a separate concurrence that he believed the moratorium had to be enacted by Congress, if at all, not the CDC, right? That the CDC was acting beyond the scope of its powers in ordering this eviction moratorium, but that he was voting to keep the moratorium in place anyways because it was set to expire in just a few weeks, right? This would allow a sort of a smoother transition. It would allow the administration more stability in in kind of changing its strategy and deciding what it was going to do in the realm of housing assistance when the moratorium expired. 
I want to point out, um, there was no majority opinion in that case. Right. Nothing was written. It was just an order handed down by the court. Right. Kavanaugh just wrote separately to explain himself. Right. Yes. But we know, of course, that the Delta variant had other plans for us. COVID cases obviously blew up over the summer. And so right after the eviction moratorium ended on July 31st, a couple days later, the CDC again issued a new eviction moratorium. And this one was supposed to last for another two months. I want to jump in to point out one thing, which is that the CDC only acted after the Biden administration sort of publicly shot themselves in the foot by saying to the press that they weren't sure if a new moratorium would be legal and they were trying to figure out how to do it, which is sort of bizarre because, like I mentioned, there wasn't even a majority opinion in the last case. So whether or not it's legal is sort of completely up in the air at this point. The Supreme Court hasn't explained what is or is not legal, but just, uh, you know, sort of an impressive display of incompetence coming from the Biden administration there. Yeah. Yeah. Shot themselves right in the foot. But let's talk about why that new eviction moratorium was enacted just in terms of actual impact on the ground and housing assistance and eviction protection that people need during this pandemic. So over the summer, the Biden administration estimated that some 7 million households in the U.S. were behind on rent because of pandemic-related economic hardship, and they were, quote, at risk of eviction if the moratorium were to be lifted. In addition, over the summer, there was nearly $50 billion in emergency rental assistance that had already been approved by Congress, but it had been slow to be distributed by the Biden administration. And so it wasn't getting into the hands of people who needed that rent assistance. The National Low Income Housing Coalition, they reported just a couple of months ago that in some states, less than 5% of those emergency funds had been distributed so far. And they were calling for the administration to extend the ban among many other housing advocates in the country so that states and localities would have more time to get this money out and distributed to poor people who were at risk of losing their housing. And additionally, talking about, uh, you know, the realistic impact of eviction and who that is going to burden, many people were at risk of being evicted, even despite the moratorium, because of loopholes in the law. And those people that were sort of extremely at risk and still not getting emergency housing funds, many of them are sort of the lowest income tenants in the country and disproportionately people of color. The eviction lab at Princeton University, in fact, found in a study that communities with the lowest vaccination rates tended to have the highest eviction filings. You know, so all of this raises additional health concerns amidst a booming pandemic over the summer. Right, right. All right. So this case is about the scope of the CDC's power. Do they have the authority to impose an eviction moratorium or not? To help us with that question, there is a federal law that lays out exactly what they are authorized to do. In fact, it contains a list of things that they can do. It says the CDC can engage in inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of infected animals or items, and other measures as in its judgment may be necessary. So you may think this is simple. The law says that the CDC can implement any measure it deems necessary. It thought the eviction moratorium was necessary. End of story. But no, 
the landlords argue that you shouldn't read it that way. What the law says is that the CDC can do inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, etc., and other measures it deems necessary. What the landlords argue is, well, that doesn't mean any other measures. What it really means is that the CDC can do things similar to what is listed. Wow. <laughs> Textualist, gotcha. <laughs> they're doing textualism, right? Because, you know, if the law they're saying was supposed to be that the CDC could do anything it wanted, why would they need to include a list of specifics? This is sort of a, a common canon of textualist interpretation known in Latin as a justum generis, which means of the same kind. Very common amongst textualists and, and widely used by conservatives to sort of limit government authority. And, you know, if I were to articulate a good faith defense of this, this interpretation, this textualist argument, it would be, look, you know, like in, in colloquial speech, if, if I said, hey, take anything you want from my kitchen, there's snacks, there's soda, grab whatever you want. You wouldn't make off with my cast iron skillet, right? You would understand that what I really meant was, you know, you can have snacks and snack adjacent items, yeah. right? Not, right? I'm not grabbing your tub of lentils and being like, I've been meaning to pick up some lentils. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just right. taking those home with me. You're not going grocery shopping. <laughs> now, I don't think that applies here, but I think it's something that applies much more in colloquial speech than when you're actually writing a statute, yeah. right? That you right. are writing with, you know, I would assume some amount of precision and care. And, you know, moreover, I think the reason this argument is really silly is that the law lists the measures the CDC can take and then says, and other measures it deems necessary. It doesn't say, and other similar measures it deems necessary, right? It, if that's what Congress meant, they could have said it, but they didn't. And to me, you know, that's the strongest point here. If that's how they wanted to write the statute, they could have done it that way. And they didn't. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, canons like it used in generous. They have their uses, you know, even in statutory mm -hmm. interpretation. But it's just a bad use here. It's just a it's just a poor one. Yeah. It's a very broad statute with very broad language, including that provision and other measures that says they could do what they deem necessary. It couldn't be clear that this is meant to be broad language and the conservatives are just narrowing it because they don't like it when the government has broad powers. And, you know, despite the fact that I think this interpretation doesn't make a ton of sense in this context, the court, of course, agrees with the landlords. Of course. And adopts this sort of strained textualist reading. Now, the dissent makes a couple of additional points as to why the majority is getting it wrong here. What the dissent says is, look, the point of the list of things that the CDC can do is not to limit the overall scope of the CDC's authority. It's to give a green light to certain intrusions into personal property that people might find particularly objectionable, right? And further, one of the drafters of the law explicitly said that the listing of examples within the law was not intended to limit the CDC's power. And finally, it, it would be bizarre for Congress to write a law that says the CDC can take any measure when what they actually mean is only a couple of things, right? Like right. fumigation and inspection and sanitation. Uh, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. But even if you don't 100% know what is the correct interpretation here, even if the ajusdom generis concept makes some sense to you, the legal standard 
is supposed to be that the court can only interfere here if the lower court clearly and demonstrably made a mistake. Right. And in this case, what that means is that the court can only halt the eviction moratorium if it is clearly and demonstrably in violation of the statute. Right. So, you know, say what you want about the merits of one type of statutory interpretation against the other. But can you actually say that the law clearly shows that the CDC cannot institute a ban on certain evictions to contain the spread of COVID? Yeah. Right. Court is like, right. well, yeah, but if you read it a certain way, there's an argument that that's not literally what it means. Like, get get the fuck <laughs> right. out of here. Like, yeah. you, right. If you want to make some academic point about how maybe this law could be interpreted to be more limited than it initially seems, fine. But don't pretend that it's clear. Right. Yeah. It's, right. it's right. definitely not. Exactly. The majority tries to get around this a bit by using really grandiose language, saying that this is an unprecedented use of the CDC's authority. But the dissent points out, this dissent's written by Breyer, that it's not unprecedented at all and that the government used eviction bans uh, 100 years ago when the Spanish flu was raging. So, well, well, well. Yeah. Um, extremely precedented. Really. Literally precedented. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like they're, they're literal precedent. And it's also like, yeah, OK, so there aren't a lot of examples of eviction moratoriums in the last 70 years. That's also because there aren't examples of, you know, pandemics that have infected 40 million Americans and killed <laughs> 600,000 plus Americans in the last 70 right. years. One of the, one of the things that is like conceded about what the statute empowers the CDC to do is quarantine, right? Right. And quarantines are a much greater imposition on individual liberty than eviction moratoriums. Like your confinement right total restriction of liberty, that's a bigger imposition than just like preventing someone from making money off their extra pieces of property. Yeah. Like the idea that they are allowed to quarantine people, but not to prevent eviction. Right. It's just, I mean, it's inherently absurd. Yeah. You can't prevent the eviction of 7 million people, but you could then throw them into massive quarantine camps. Right. That makes <laughs> sense. The Majority opinion here also talks about the uh, the balance of equities going in favor of uh, the landlords here, which I think is nuts. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They say the equities has shifted here from the last time they heard this case because vaccine and rental uh, assistance distribution have improved (laughs) while the harm to landlords has continued to increase. I want to take issue (laughs) with some of this. So first of all, if rental assistance has improved, as they said, then that is mitigating the harm to live. Yes. (laughs) That's what's wild is they say rent like rental assistance has improved. And it's like that money goes to landlords. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Right. That's going to the landlords. That's mitigating their harm. Like the tenants, they're not getting evicted either way in this scenario. Right. They're either making rent or they're unable to make rent and are not getting evicted because moratorium. So that's the same. The difference is whether or not the landlords are getting paid. And if rental assistance is increasing, then the landlords are getting paid. That is mitigating their harm, not increasing it. These motherfuckers have been living in Georgetown mansions for so long that they forgot what rent is. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and second, they say vaccine distribution has has improved. And sure, vaccines are readily available now. But the majority doesn't mention till the very end of the opinion is there's a new variant of COVID that's breaking through right. into vaccinated populations and creating yeah. a new surge in cases. That's right. 
Yeah, and if you control F for delta, <laughs> it doesn't pop up until the last like two paragraphs of the opinion, and, and they're just sort of mentioning it offhand. It's unbelievable, and, and so like in stays like this, one of the standards is uh, whether there's like a risk of irreparable harm, right? And, and the idea is like you don't want to inflict a harm on someone that can't be remedied in furtherance of a law or a decision you think is going to be overturned in a few months, right? Because then, you know, it's like you can't, the the genie's out of the bottle and there's no putting it back. Right, Right. exactly. And so the majority here says, well, yeah, millions of landlords across the country are at risk of irreparable harm by depriving them of rent payments. (laughs) But, (laughs) and I think this needs to be made like extremely clear there is no better example of a harm you can repair than a monetary <laughs> harm. It's the easiest possible right, harm to right. repair because it's it's already monetized for you. All you got to do is just sue for right. the amount of money and you get your fucking money. Yeah. That's it. The harm is repaired. Exactly. It's the yeah. definition right. of a harm that can be repaired. The opposite of a concern yeah. In, in something like this. Yes. Irreparable harm is like, my arm is going to be chopped off right. if you don't halt this court order. Yes. Yeah. If I'm out two grand right. because someone didn't pay me rent, it's not like a mystery <laughs> how to repair that harm. It's done. Exactly. You give me two grand. That's right. <laughs> and to the point, do you know what is an irreparable harm here is getting fucking COVID and dying. That's right. That's yeah. irreparable. Right. 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 That is an irreparable harm. Yeah. Or losing everything because you're evicted. Right. Yeah. Becoming evicted and having to lose your job because you have to move states, right? Because you have to go move in with your parents, getting your parents sick. Those mm-hmm. are irreparable harms. Recovering lost rent is the definition of irreparable harm. Really good point. It's, it's ridiculous. Right. And to the point about this being a harm that could be repaired. Now that the eviction moratorium has been ended, there are reports you can find of eviction proceedings where landlords are saying that they are rejecting the government's offers of rental assistance funds and asking for the evictions anyway because they just want to churn. They want new tenants. They don't want the money. So it's like the harm isn't like the lack of money to them. The harm is just that they can't kick these fucking people out because they want new tenants. And that's... That's right. bullshit. Right. Exactly. Well, it's irreparable harm because they sustain themselves off the suffering of their tenants. That's right. That's right. And if the suffering stops, they will wither away. <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. These. Hmm. Do you guys ever watch um what we do in the shadows? It's like a mockumentary about vampires. Hell yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. It's so good. Very funny. It is deeply stupid, but it is so, so funny. It's so fucking stupid. Yeah, there are just like really funny, um, like the energy vampire. (laughs) Colin Robinson. Yes, it's so good. Anyway, it reminds me of like landlords, like just feeding off of fucking crushing souls. (laughs) There's the scene at like the town council where everyone's arguing and then it just cuts to the energy vampire. (laughs) And he's just like... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, 
the the majority, even though it's only a few pages, it's breathtakingly dishonest. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a point where they say they're describing like the history of the case. They're describing the history of the case. And they say, apart from slightly narrowing the geographic scope, the new moratorium is indistinguishable from the old. But that's not true, in fact. Right. And, and this is a point Breyer makes, but he doesn't make forcefully enough in dissent, which is that the CDC's new moratorium if like its guidelines had been in place in June, right, in the prior June, it would have only covered like 10 to 20 percent of counties. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The reason why it's indistinguishable from the old moratorium now that it's hitting 90 plus percent of counties and millions of people is because cases are surging. Right. 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 And their metrics for what like a high transmission county is are being triggered everywhere because the pandemic has a new wave. Like, that's the problem. Right. Yes. Yeah. So the moratorium uses a formula that goes county by county. And if you're in a high risk county, then, you know, the moratorium is more likely to apply in that area so as to protect tenants in high risk areas. Sure. And because of the spike in Delta, the amount of counties covered by the new moratorium was approximately the same as the amount covered by the prior moratorium. And so the Supreme Court points to that to be like, well, these moratoriums are the same. But the reason that the coverage was the same was that the Delta spike drove up the amount of high-risk counties. The formula was totally different. Exactly. But there were now more high-risk counties, so you ended up with more coverage. And the court sort of uses that to obfuscate the fact that these moratoria are completely different. Right, right. It's a way of just pretending that the Delta spike doesn't exist, right? Right. Just trying to pretend like the conditions are the same now as they were in June. Yeah. Yeah. Turning, I think, to, again, just the material impact, who is at risk and who is most burdened and affected by, you know, the eviction moratorium being lifted here by the Supreme Court. Breyer, I think, writes a pretty strong dissent, like relative to Breyer's ability to write a forceful dissent. Right. Yes. For him. That's true. (laughs) One of my favorite parts of the dissent was that Breyer (laughs) popped in a chart that was just like, here's the, the spike of the Delta variant. Like, here are the cases going up, you stupid motherfuckers. (laughs) Like, here's a picture. I don't know if this helps. Not pulling any bunches. He's like, bitch, look at the chart. You know, like, for Breyer, that's that's real strong stuff. Right. We're framing it as if he's like, fuck you, here's the chart. But in reality, he's probably like, maybe this chart would be helpful to (laughs) illustrate my point. One of his clerks showed him the chart and he's like, yeah. Fascinating. (laughs) Perhaps John will be persuaded by this. (laughs) Yeah. Breyer notes in his dissent, quote, the public interest strongly favors respecting the CDC's judgment at this moment when over 90 percent of counties are experiencing high transmission rates. That figure is the highest it has been since at least last winter. It was in the single digits when we considered the CDC's previous moratorium order and denied applicants earlier motion end quote. He's talking about back in June, right? Right. So the circumstances exactly have completely changed. Now, we know things 
through research and social sciences, right, about how evictions affect poverty, affect social mobility, and in particular, make people more vulnerable to disease during a global pandemic, right? Evictions send families into a downward financial spiral, right? My clients who have been evicted during this pandemic, we're talking about people living in vans, right, with their disabled mom. We're talking about people who now have to shower at homeless shelters that are overflowing and don't have beds for them, you know? It can be really hard, depending on where you live, to find another place to live with an eviction already on your record. You know, legal evictions go on somebody's housing record, right? It's a legal proceeding against you that then you are shown to have lost, right? So it calls into question your sort of financial stability. Yeah, it shows up on background checks. Yeah. That's right. You can't apply to rent a new place super easily with an eviction already on your record. And so, again, people end up living in their cars, living in motels temporarily when they can afford it. They can live in homeless shelters when those shelters are available. Right. And in addition, research has found that there is a disparate impact on people of color because there's a disparate experience of poverty on people of color in this country. And during the pandemic, additional research has shown and public health experts have been screaming nonstop about this, that evictions result in more coronavirus cases because people end up living in more crowded situations. Living in a homeless shelter right now is dangerous. Living in a homeless shelter, living at a motel where people congregate, living at a church that has opened its doors so that people who have been evicted, newly homeless families can live there. That is dangerous during a global pandemic, right? And I think practically speaking, in terms of politics and what the Democrats have Mm -hmm. been doing, doing. You know, the Biden administration was obviously caught again, like back on its heels. Right. They knew this was coming in June, July, when the Supreme Court originally said or indicated that it thought the eviction moratorium was illegal, but did nothing in the interim to either make those billions of dollars in emergency housing assistance available, you know, disseminated to municipalities and states and did nothing in terms of the legal argument to bolster arguing for an extended eviction moratorium. Or even in terms of just like PR, you know, just just getting out ahead of it from a messaging perspective. At the end of July, every single person knew two things. One, the Delta variant was causing a spike that was going to get worse. And two, the moratorium was about to expire. Yeah. That's right. And yet when it did expire, they were flat footed. They, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. They had no coherent message. They were sputtering on national television uh, right. about the Supreme Court, but also acting as if the court was right, that the moratorium was illegal. Right. They weren't challenging the court in any way. And what happened is it it took them a few days to put together a new moratorium that it took the court then a few weeks to smack down. Right. And since then, we've heard nothing about it. Our last episode was about SBA, the abortion law in Texas. And that was another case where the law originates in May. And, you know, we get to the point a few months later where the court lets it stand and the Democrats are just left standing there with their dicks in their hand. I mean, yeah. what the fuck yep. are they doing? Yeah. where Where's the foresight? Yeah. Doing these two episodes back to back, I've been thinking about this, and it's really like Democrats do not know how to handle an adverse 
court, Mm -hmm. like at all. Republicans have been doing this shit since the 50s and the 60s, right? Like we talked about, I think, in our Terry v. Ohio case way back when about how there were protests against the Supreme Court back then. Yeah, yeah. The Republicans, they have it down pat, man. If the Supreme Court comes out in a way they don't like, they are ready. They're ready not right. just to go at the court, but to individual justices to yes, single them out. Yes, they will out. call John Roberts out. Yes. If you step out of line, they will come down on you as an entire movement, the media apparatus, the politicians. Right. right. And that's their own side. Yeah. Among Democrats, John Roberts has higher approval than Republicans because Republicans are frustrated with him just very occasionally joining the liberals. Right. They maintain a tight leash on these guys. Right. It's it's important to them. This is the guy who has spearheaded the dismantling of the Voting Rights Act and elections in general. Right. Not enough for them. A, that's not enough for them. And B, not enough for Democrats (laughs) to coherently message against him enough to make him unpopular with the base. It's it's insane. It's pathetic. It's it's a total abdication of their responsibility as leaders of a political movement, right? Like they represent over 50% of the country. Like they have responsibilities to the country and to their constituencies and to their base. And this is just a total failure. Yes. Unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I I was thinking about this this morning and it was getting me very (laughs) angry. (laughs) I'm taking the Biden sticker out of my window. That's the So I don't want to step like too far out of our lane, but it's incredible how many of the problems that appear on the surface to be the result of COVID or some other discrete issue are really just like the downstream effects of capitalism. Like here you have the court weighing the interests of landlords against the interests of tenants and the goals of the CDC. But if housing were publicly provided, the entire analysis changes to one where you aren't weighing the interests of two separate groups against one another at all, but where there's really one interest to be considered, and that's the public interest, right? Exactly. But capitalism has this effect where people are not simply atomized, but also pitted into adverse relationships with one another that in a better system would not need to be adverse. In that's Like right. in this country, a landlord's loss is often a tenant's gain and vice versa. The parties are put into a situation where their needs are hostile to one another. So every time there's a case about health care or housing or whatever, the court is weighing the interests of people against one another. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we don't need to be weighing the interests of tenants and landlords or doctors and patients against one another. Right. That's that's an output of a very particular, very specific socioeconomic structure. That's right. And, you know, while we're sort of on these like big picture social issues, you know, looking through that lens, I I do want to talk a little bit more about like the politics of this, which is like, it's pretty obvious at this point and has been for over a decade that Republicans have a very clear political strategy when they are not in power, when Democrats are in power. And that is to actively make the country worse, right? They wanted to extend the recession or the depression under Obama make the recovery worse because, you know, the parties in power get punished when economic performance is poor, when people are out of work, mm-hmm. when there's inflation and prices go up, whatever, right? Like people blame the party in power and Republicans want Democrats to be blamed for stuff. And so in this case today, that means they have been actively trying to make the pandemic worse. They're a pro-pandemic party, right? right. They are... 
continually making it harder yeah. to do basic social distancing, basic masking, and basic vaccine-oriented, uh, you know, regulations and private business rules related to those things to help, you know, contain the spread of COVID. And, and they're doing that because the longer the pandemic goes on, uh, the longer there are like economic hardships from that, the better they think their prospects will be in the next election cycle. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, one of the changing circumstances in the last year that has led to this moment has been that, you know, the CDC under Donald Trump passed this eviction moratorium because they knew it was politically important then, mm -hmm. right, in August when they were in the middle of an election season to be keeping people in their homes. But now it's politically advantageous for them for the things to be bad, for the pandemic to rage. Yeah. And the Supreme Court is right there with them, right? Like yeah. right in line with the party's goals on this. Like, let's make the pandemic worse. Let's make voting hard. Everything they do is consonant with the Republican Party goals. Yeah, that's a good point. It's so fucking bleak. Yeah. And again, I don't want to like step out of our lane too much, but like they're advocating policies that like intelligent people within the Republican Party know are disproportionately killing their own voters. Yes. Yes. It is like unreal sociopathic, even yes. by government official standards, right? Yes. Even by yeah. politician standards. Yeah. So I think we should talk a little bit about administrative law. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Briar's favorite. Yeah. Flawless segue. <laughs> there is a massive disconnect between how conservatives conceptualize executive power depending on what that power is being used for. The CDC is under the Department of Health and Human Services, which is an agency of the executive branch, um, which is all to say that the CDC is technically a function of the executive branch and therefore the power of the presidency. Right. Conservatives have long been skeptical of the administrative state, by which I mean the network of hundreds of executive agencies that help make up the executive branch of the government, from the DHHS here to the Federal Trade Commission, Federal Communications Commission, the EPA, the SEC, the FEC, Departments of Labor, Interior, Treasury, on and on. Yeah. Conservative legal academics have tried to frame their concerns as being about the scope of executive power, especially the usurping by administrative agencies of congressional power. They've just been arguing that this administrative state is all of these agencies are too powerful. Their right. scope too expansive. And they've developed various normative legal theories of administrative agencies' power to try to limit the authority of those agencies. Mm -hmm. But their true concern, of course, is not some like abstract notion about the allocation of government power. It's that many of these agencies are exercising the type of government power that they do not like. Yeah. It's no coincidence that much of conservative theory about the administrative state arose around the time that the Environmental Protection Agency was trying to assert its regulatory power over corporations in the 1970s, especially. Yes. And the CDC, especially in the context of an eviction moratorium, has run into the same problems as the EPA. Conservatives simply do not have much sympathy for their mission. So they will parade around like all sorts of academic theories about the scope of the CDC's authority. But at the end of the day, their basic complaint is that they don't like it when the government does this sort of shit. And you might think that this take is like a little too cynical and perhaps ask why I am so confident in my assessment that they are operating in bad faith here. And I think the real reason that I feel confident is that 
the agencies that do serve purposes that conservatives like are rarely treated by conservative courts with the same level of skepticism. Yes. Majority of our military and intelligence apparatus is contained within the Department of Defense. Has the court reined in their authority much? No. no. They mm-hmm. fucking run wild. Yeah. yeah. What's the single most egregious ongoing violation of our Constitution happening right now? Many contenders? Matter of opinion? <laughs> <laughs> A lot of options on the table. Here's my best guess. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution grants Congress the power to declare war. When was war last declared? World War II. World War fucking II. (laughs) The executive branch has almost completely usurped war-making power from Congress since then. And yet the academic conservative concern about allocation of power to agencies has been largely absent from uh, those discussions. And, you know, this is a very long rant to say very simply, this case is not about the statutory power of the CDC. It is about the conservative vision of what the government should be. Yeah, Peter's 100 percent on point here. And one day we'll talk about some of the cases, the national security cases, but like a constant theme you'll find in conservative academia about this stuff is that like in times of national emergency, the courts should defer to the executive branch. The executive branch is the branch with expertise. It's the one that's able to make quick decisions about this stuff. And, you know, uh, national security is a big deal and we're scared and like we should let the people who know what's up do what they should Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Guess what? Like, This is a national emergency that we're in, that we've been in for a long time, that has had much more serious consequences than any armed conflict since, I don't know, since when? When was the last time we've had an armed conflict that has created the amount of hardship on American soil as 40 million infected and 600,000 dead? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, period. And I think it's really important to point out here that the original eviction moratorium enacted by the CDC came under the Trump presidency. Yeah. Right. It was a Republican administration that first enacted this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's no let's defer to the experts here. Right. Instead, it's uh, they're more than happy to wade in and undercut their response. Yeah. The conservative distaste for expertise encompasses everything except for the military. That's right. Uh, I mean, it's like, (laughs) yeah, it's just transparent. And like, it almost seems so obvious that it's like not even worth like (laughs) digging into the nuance of it. There's literally an entire conservative legal academic movement about limiting the power of the administrative state that almost as a matter of course, just ignores the DOD, which is like half of the administrative state's budget. (laughs) (laughs) So given this case and the SB8 case, the abortion case, maybe... We should talk a bit before we wrap up about the shadow docket. Yes. We've talked a bit about it before. The shadow docket is a term used to refer to cases that come to the Supreme Court outside of its normal course of business, you might say. So the court's term starts in October and it'll pick some cases, schedule them for argument, briefs are submitted, and decisions come down starting in February or so through June. That is the official court docket. But sometimes cases arise outside of that framework. So if an urgent issue arises that can't wait for the usual schedule, the court may feel the need to address it more quickly. Mm -hmm. And those cases comprise the court's shadow docket, and they will usually be done with minimal briefing, generally no oral argument at all. 
So here the landlords are saying like, look, we can't wait until next year for this to be resolved. We're running out of our tenants' money right now. <laughs> We're trying to do rent-seeking immediately, right? right? And so the court isn't ruling on the merits. Technically, mm-hmm. they're ruling on whether or not to stay a lower court judgment right. about right. this case. And so it's very much like a these sort of procedural cases about whether to let certain decisions stand or not while they're being appealed and, and things like that. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So similarly, the recent abortion case involved abortion providers saying the issue can't wait, needs to be resolved now. Uh, You need to decide whether or not this law stands preliminarily before you sort of make a final judgment on the case down the road. That's right. right. So these cases are on the shadow docket. Yeah. And I think in the past couple of years, the Supreme Court's shadow docket has exemplified, really, an even more determined conservative legal movement that is kind of operating even a little bit behind the scenes. Right. We don't have oral argument in these cases. It's very easy for a conservative supermajority to rule on incredibly important issues that impact millions of people, like in this case, like in the SB8 case. And they're doing so without much transparency at all to the public. We critique a lot on this podcast the way the Supreme Court decides their cases, the conservative legal movement, the reasoning that they have brought to statutory interpretation. But I think another big critique of the Supreme Court that people don't talk about a lot and we haven't talked about a lot on this podcast is the Supreme Court's power in choosing 100 percent of its docket. Right. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court chooses which cases are their sort of regular docket, which cases are going to have oral argument. And the Supreme Court chooses in its discretion which cases it's going to decide on the shadow docket as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the the simplest way to describe the problem with the shadow docket is that it's done somewhat out of the public eye. Right. Right. And sort of stripped of even the most basic formalities of law, of, of how judiciary functions, right? Oral argument, extensive briefing, et cetera. Right. I mean, the court is very frequently issuing these orders without any yeah. written explanation. I mean, we mentioned that the original moratorium was, you know, opinion came down without a real explanation of why the court considered it illegal right, at all. Right, right. It was just a paragraph from Kavanaugh writing separately about his own specific reasoning, and that was it. Yeah. Uh, you know, a very frequent type of shadow docket case is a petition for stays of execution. That's right. Where people are trying to halt the execution of a, of a prisoner on death row. And the court will often reject those stays without a written explanation. Right. The final determination on someone living or dying, no explanation given. Right. Just a thumbs up or thumbs down. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, they are operating in the darkness. And I think it's pretty clear that the court has been handling more politically significant cases on its shadow docket than it has in the past. Absolutely. And, you know, like we saw with the SB8 case just a couple of weeks back, their willingness to bury huge jurisprudential shifts in shadow docket cases seems to have increased. And that's interesting to me in large part because I think it signals a sort of knowingness on the court's part. Yeah. Court as an institution ostensibly views itself as apolitical and then you know, here it is using the shadow docket in a way that's pretty consistent to how it would use it if it was attempting to obscure unpopular reactionary decisions from public view a bit. Right. Exactly. How convenient. And there was a written decision in in this eviction moratorium case. There was a written decision 
in the abortion case, but they were very short, barely explaining their reasoning. And not signed. Right. And not signed. Both of them were per curiam, which means that we don't know who wrote it, which in some circumstances, you can maybe say that it makes sense for the court to issue a per curiam decision. I would say that it doesn't make any sense unless the case is unanimous, uh, because it's supposed to be sort of a statement being made by the court, not any particular justice. But I just don't understand why there would ever be a situation where we shouldn't know which justice wrote something. I just don't. Right. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about something like functionally overturning Roe v. Wade, putting millions of people out on the streets. It seems to me like a little too convenient that perhaps no right. one wants to throw their name at the end of that decision. Yeah. It's hard to take a look at the last couple of years of their use of the shadow docket and not think that they are knowingly operating in the darkness to a degree and doing it because it allows them to maintain political leverage and uh, institutional legitimacy. Yeah. yeah. Even when they do good stuff, they do it like this also. I, mm-hmm. I think another example of what Peter's talking about, there's been a shift in qualified immunity as well at the Supreme Court, and it has happened largely on the shadow docket. Mm -hmm. And this has been a good shift. Which cases the court will reject and which ones they'll accept and which ones they'll remand and and that sort of thing. And in so doing, signal to lower courts like, oh, you should either be erring on the side of granting qualified Mm -hmm. immunity to cops, which prevents them from you know, being sued for violating people's constitutional rights right. or not, right? Whether you should err against that and err on the side of people whose rights were were violated. And in the last couple of years, there's been a noticeable shift on the shadow docket with right. the Supreme Court sort of signaling to lower courts, like, you should be much more skeptical of cops trying to invoke qualified immunity. Yes. And that's a good thing. That's right. But it's also an example of the court very clearly trying to avoid headlines right. about politically charged issues. Like even when it's trying to do good things, it, it does that. That's right. It's undoubtedly intentional. Yeah. The other point I want to make about the shadow docket is that I think you'll see a lot of people talk about a shadow docket reform. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not necessarily pro or anti. Uh, I don't have strong feelings about it in general. Right. I think it's sort of misdiagnosing the problem here. Right. Right. Like for sure, the conservatives are abusing the shadow docket, like without a doubt. And I'm sure there are ways that you could make it better. But the problem is the conservative supermajority feeling totally unrestrained. Right. That's the problem. And and shadow docket reform is is that's not going to change that at all. You need to address the problem head on. Yeah. It's an outgrowth of a much deeper problem. Yeah. I would like them to have to write a reasoning in every order. Yeah. For sure. But if it was required of them, we would just have to read their awful reasoning. I don't, like, you know, it, <laughs> it doesn't solve the underlying problem. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, th- I think we should wrap up. You know, there's a lot of conservative pathos and ideology about the law wrapped up in the eviction moratorium, the case and the moratorium itself. You know, their view of the administrative state, their tendency to side with capital their use of formalistic technicalities to obscure the damage being done to real people, you know, throw in the rise of the shadow docket. And this is just a perfect storm of conservative bullshit. Yeah. At the end of the day, though, I think it's important to center your thoughts on the millions of people impacted by this who will be forced out into the streets, who will get sick, who will die All because the conservatives think that some vague principle about how to interpret a statute is more important than all of that human suffering combined. This is your weekly reminder that 
This is an ideology that is diametrically opposed to the proliferation of justice for oppressed and marginalized people. And if you want to build a better country and a better world for those people, the Supreme Court in its current form, both as it is composed and the level of power that it has, cannot exist. That's right. Next week, adoptive couple, the baby girl case about the rights of Native American families from just a few years back. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at 5-4-POD. Thanks for supporting the Patreon. We'll see you soon. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Mm-hmm.